we've already sang a prayer, but let me just say a short prayer as, as we go to the word. Father, the words that we've sang, let them be true of our hearts and our attitudes. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be the loudest voice here and everywhere where your word is preached. In Jesus' name, amen. I am continuing my series through 1 Timothy today, and we will be in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I want to encourage you to open a Bible. If you didn't bring one, there are Bibles in the seats around us in the room here. Uh, And if you need a Bible, let me know. I will get you one today before you leave. Uh, I think there's just tremendous value in having a print copy of the Word of God that you can underline and pray through. Uh, And so I want to encourage you, go ahead and turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I'd like to begin with a joke that's so familiar, it's risky in telling it. In fact, I I may ask for a little bit of help in telling it, because I think most of you will have heard it multiple times before. So there was a guy, and he heard plenty of warning on radio and TV, there was a flood coming. And so he said, you know what? I have faith. I just believe that God is going to take care of me. And so I'm not going to leave. I'm going to stay in my home. God will take care of me. So it starts raining, right? This guy's name is not Noah, by the way. Starts raining. It rains heavy and hard. And floodwaters start rising. And he looks out his window and goes, wow, this is pretty bad. So he climbs up onto his roof. He sees this guy going by in a rowboat. Hey, buddy, you need need a way out of here? And so from his rooftop, as the waters are rising, what does he say? Help me out. What does he say? God will take care of me. God will save me. So the guy with the rowboat goes rowing on by out into the distance, and he doesn't see him anymore. And as the guy stays on the roof, the water keeps rising. And he's standing on the peak of the roof at this point. There's no place else to go except for maybe another 18 inches on the chimney. This guy in a helicopter comes, goes over to the roof, throws down a ladder. This guy is clutching to his chimney. Floodwaters keep rising. Guy from the helicopter shouts down and says, Hey, man, do you need a ride? Do you need a way out of this? And what does he say? God will take care of me. I'll be all right. So the guy in the helicopter goes, all right, man. I'm looking for somebody else to help, and he flies away. And the guy that was clutching to his chimney on his roof drowns. This is not an encouraging joke, by the way, just in case you haven't heard it before. Dies, and he goes and stands before the Lord, and he says, God, I had faith. I believe that you were going to rescue me. What, why am I here? What, what happened? And God looks at him and says, well, I gave you plenty of warning on TV and radio. I sent a guy in a boat. I sent a guy in a helicopter. What more were you looking for? And I tell that joke for this reason. I have entitled this message, Ten Commands to save us all. Ten commands to save us all. That's kind of a cheeky title. It's kind of a big deal because we are Protestants. We believe that we are saved by grace through faith. Nothing we do, no works can be added to the work of Christ. So if I say that there are ten commands to save us all, uh, good news, they are not the ten commandments. We're not going there. But if I say there are 10 commands in our text today to save us all, we need to understand how does this work with the gospel of grace? And here's what I believe. I believe that God has promised to use the things that we are going to talk about today to save us all. The things that we are talking about are the way that God works his salvation for his people. And yet, many times, people dismiss them as unimportant or non-essential, or they say they have their own way of understanding things, 
And I believe that just like a man who is rejecting warnings and boats and helicopters, when we turn away from the things that God has used to save us, we are making a deadly mistake. I believe that the title I chose for this message and the message that I'm about to preach is profoundly biblical. And it is very much consistent with Protestant theology that says salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But to stress what these things are and how they work in our lives to bring about our salvation, let's take a moment and talk about salvation. Now, for some of you, you may have thought through this in the past, and so this will just be a little bit of review. And if that's you, my hope is that you will value and love the things that we're talking about even more. But for some of you, this may be a new way of thinking. And so I want to ask you to listen carefully and to go to the Word to see if what I'm saying is accurate and true. See, when the Bible uses a word like salvation, very often it has at least three things in mind. Very often, it has at least three things in mind. There is, first, the complete forgiveness of sins and the gift of Christ's righteousness that happens the moment you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. You can think Acts 16.31, The Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Your sins are completely covered by his blood. You as a guilty sinner are forgiven because Christ has paid your debt and has given you his righteousness. And that happens in a single moment. Just one moment, you move from being an enemy of God to a friend of God. But that moment begins a journey, a decisive journey, a one-way trip to glory. You ever heard that old song, this train is bound for glory? If you are a believer in Jesus, you do not stay the person you were when you first believed. So the first part The the classical word is justification. Sometimes people say things, it's like, it's just as if I had never sinned. Your sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. But the next part of salvation, and it's all salvation, very often we look at justification as if that's it. But there's more. The next part of salvation, in the way that the Bible uses the word, you might call sanctification. Sanctification, that's a word that means you are made holy. You are set apart. You will be different than the way you were when you first believed. Doesn't matter what your sins are, how obvious they were to other people, when you place your faith and trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven and he begins to change you from the sinner you were into the saint you will be. Now, in this life, we are all on that journey. Every Christian is simultaneously a sinner and a saint at the same time. But here's the thing. All Christians are in the process of growing in holiness. So they learn obedience. They learn what it means to do what is right. They begin to learn the ways that their sins were destructive to themselves and others, and they begin to change. It might change the way you talk. You might choose to use different words. It might change the shows that you watch. You might choose to do different things with your time. It should change the way that you treat your wife and your kids or your husband and your kids. It should change the way that you behave around your neighbors and in church. And the things that you love will gradually change because of the way God is at work in you. This is also by grace. The Holy Spirit is working in your heart. The Bible promises that when you believe in Jesus, God gives you a new heart that will love his commandments and laws. 
No Christian has experienced the fullness of that gift yet because sanctification is kind of the middle part of salvation. But the end part, you could call glorification. Glorification. So I said justification. Your sins are forgiven. Sanctification. Not optional. Every Christian will go through this. Sanctification. You are made holy. And it's a process. And sometimes it's a long and a painful process as the Lord shows you sins that you were unaware of and you learn as you follow the Lord to forsake your sin and to love doing what's right. But the end of the process, the Bible calls glorification. If you want a passage where this is described, I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'm not going to give you a couple of verses because I want you to read the whole chapter. Romans chapter 8 makes it so clear how God works in you so that you're saved in a moment by faith and gradually made holy, but the end is absolutely certain. You will be glorified and you will enjoy being in the presence of God, angels, and every believer for all of eternity, sharing in the absolute pure and holy joy of God, and it will never end. You will never sin again. You will never even be tempted to sin again because you will be enjoying goodness and holiness so much sin could have no attraction for you. And if that sounds boring, friends, we have no idea the goodness and the fullness of the joy that is in the presence of God. Every earthly pleasure is just a shadow compared to the joys that we will experience in God. And the Bible teaches that we will be resurrected and raised in bodies that are so far beyond what we can imagine. We can't even compare anything in this life to the joy of the next life. But if you have enjoyed eating good food, and if you have been blessed with a good family, or if you have not been blessed with a good family, and you ache and your heart breaks for the joy that you see other people's having, let me say this clearly. Heaven will be unending, uninterrupted joy forever where you will never be disappointed because somebody let you down or broke a promise. You will never be disappointed in yourself because you failed. You will forever be satisfied by the joy of knowing the Lord and being surrounded by people who are having the best unending party That's what the Bible calls glorification. When you exist in the presence of God with no sin and your joy is so full that you can't even imagine it right now and the end is just as certain as the beginning. Here's what we sometimes do though. We forget that when the Bible talks about salvation, very often it's talking about all three of those not just the beginning or the ending. So I want to give you a a couple of verses that could be just a little bit confusing because here's what we do. So often we believe, you know, if I prayed this prayer, I believe that I'm saved by grace and because I said these words, God has forgiven my sins and I'm good. And then we forget that the Bible talks, there's more to your life than praying that prayer. There is more to your life than just believing the gospel. So I'm going to give you two verses. One of them is from the book of Philippians. Philippians, in verse 12, I believe it's chapter 2, but I just realized I didn't put the chapter in, so read the book of Philippians. Paul writes this, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, salvation is absolutely 100% a free gift of God. You don't earn it. You couldn't earn it. Why is Paul telling his Christian readers to work out their salvation in fear and trembling? Because justification is just the beginning. Sanctification is part of salvation. Fighting to be holy is a process, and it's war. You have an enemy who hates you, who wants to see you fall into sin. He wants to destroy your life. 
And it's a daily, moment-by-moment fight to obey the God who saved you and loved you. So Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Don't believe that you do this in your own strength and power. Your hope is the God that justified you, is the God who is sanctifying you. Trust him and trust the process, because God is going to work for his good pleasure in your life. Have absolute confidence in what God is doing and be faithful to obey him. That's the first one. That's the first one. The second one, I do have the chapter for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I'm going to look at verses 1 and 2, and then also verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, Now I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Okay, so very much like Billy Graham preaching the gospel of Jesus, free grace. You come just as you are. You believe that gospel, that precious message. Paul preaches this way. He says that all who come will be saved. Then he says this to Christians, not to non-Christians. He says this to Christians. So now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, past tense. They heard it. They believed it. They were saved, past tense, talking to Christians. In which you stand now, presently, you are being made holy. You are being sanctified. And notice what he says next. And by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. I'm going to read that again. These are words of Scripture. These are the words inspired by the Spirit. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. If you are a believer today, there was a moment in your life when you heard the good news that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, and you believed that that was true. And you repented of your sin, and you asked the Lord to forgive your sin. And I believe Paul would address these words to you, and he would say, I preached, you received, That same gospel is the gospel in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. Paul says there is a type of belief that is in vain. It is a belief that does not persevere in obedience. It is a belief that is not genuine faith. It is a belief that James would say is dead because he says faith or belief, same word in Greek, faith without works is dead. So if you begin in this moment, you say, oh, I'm a Christian. I prayed that prayer. I'm good but you do not continue in belief, Paul would look at you and say, I think there's a possibility, God only knows for sure, but there's a possibility that you may have believed in vain. And there is an urgency to the command that you must continue in the gospel that you heard and believed. And if you do not continue in the gospel that you heard and believed, you may not have genuine saving faith. You can think of it like this. As I was talking with a friend this week, you might think about it getting a ticket and then later going to a concert. Okay, so if you, if you purchase a ticket to attend a concert, so the best concert I've ever been to in my life was a band called Glass Harp. We went and saw them down in Ohio, tiny little venue. We were like 15 feet from the whole band. I, I got to see Phil Kagi play his solos with such vivid detail. I could, I could understand what he was doing. It was awesome. I bought the ticket to that concert in advance. You didn't show up at the door and try to buy tickets at the door. We bought the ticket in advance. And I think very much like buying a ticket in advance is when you hear the gospel and you believe You pray the prayer and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You have the ticket. But friends, we are not at the concert yet. That concert is when we will experience the fullness of God's presence and eternal joy forever and ever. 
we experience the anticipation of that joy, we experience the complete forgiveness of sins. But if you do not continue in belief, if you throw your ticket away, it's not that you lost your salvation, it's that you never had it. The Bible teaches that there are those who fall away, and I don't believe it's possible to be saved for a little while and then to be unsaved. Scripture teaches that the God that saves you is the God that keeps you. All our hope rests in him. It's not us. It's him. But the entire Bible teaches the urgency of continuing in the faith, that the gospel that we believed is the gospel by which we are being saved. And we're in the middle of that process if you have already trusted Jesus. And so we need to continue in that process until the Lord glorifies us and every trial will be over. And that's kind of a long beginning to talk about the reality that if you have already believed in Jesus... You are in process. You are not made perfect yet. You have not experienced the fullness of your salvation. God is at work in you to make you holy. And so the passage that I'm preaching today ends like this. And I want to read you the last verse before we look at the things that Paul commands so you can understand why I spent so much time talking about salvation and how it happens in stages Because Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I'm going to read that again. I want to read that carefully. We We need to wrestle with what this verse means. Paul says, young Timothy, young pastor of this church, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You say, wait a minute, Paul. We're all already saved. That verse cannot possibly apply to us. We could maybe rewrite it and say, young Timothy, keep evangelizing to the lost so that they will be saved. What are you doing talking to Christians saying that there is a type of salvation that they don't have yet? Well, here's what I believe he's doing. The same thing that he does in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, okay, you've heard the gospel, you've believed the gospel, you need to continue in the gospel. He's saying, young Timothy, you need to continue preaching the truth, guarding the teaching of the church so that people don't fall away from the gospel and demonstrate that they never had saving faith at all. There is a real enemy that tries to attack people and prevent belief and to cause them to fall away from Christ. Jesus talked about it. Some of you know the parable of the sower and the seed, how every time the word is read and preached, Satan comes and tries to distract and steal it away so we plain forget it. He tries to entice us away with riches and worldly pleasures that make us forget what's true and lead us into disobedience. And he tries to persecute and to put us through trials that cause us terrible pain that tempt us to forsake what's true. And Jesus said there's another group that's sown on good soil and that it bears fruit And that fruit remains, friends, that's the soil that we need to be, where the word remains and where it bears fruit. And so I'm preaching this message because I believe these 10 commands that Paul writes and gives to young Timothy are expressing the way that God saves Christians. Not just the unsaved, but these 10 commands are the ways that God takes justified, forgiven sinners and leads them to glory. And if we abandon and forsake these things, we're like the guy on his roof telling the guy in the boat, you know what, I'm good. I, don't, I do my own thing, I'm fine. And God is saying, I sent you a boat and I sent you a helicopter and I told you ahead of time, what are you doing? And I believe that in a world that is so lost and broken, 
We need to pay careful attention to these things. I, I gave the title of this message as 10 Commands to Save Us All because there are 10 command words, and some of them go together. So I've got seven quick points. I'll only spend 15 or 20 minutes on each of them. That is a joke. I'm not going to spend, okay. But I've got seven quick points that combine these commands, and I want to begin at the beginning of our passage this morning. Now that we've seen why these commands are so critical, let's look at each of them, starting in verse 11. Verse 11, Paul's writing to young Timothy, and he says, command and teach these things. Okay, that's all we're going to look at for right now. Command and teach these things. If you've been with us through this series, you know Paul has been giving instructions to a young pastor on how to behave in God's house. Not in the First Baptist Church of Ephesus, not in some random location. He says every church where we believe on Jesus is God's house, and these are the things that we must do. And he puts the gospel right in chapter 1, that God saves guilty sinners. That's the foundation What Jesus has done for us in his death on the cross and rising from the dead is what creates the church when sinners believe that message and are given new life. And then he starts telling all of these forgiven sinners how to behave and what to do. So they're to pray together. Chapter 2. We're to pray about all the crazy madness that's going on in our world. That was true back then. It's true now. And then he describes how the church should be structured with leadership, with elders and deacons. And then he begins giving Timothy some very specific instructions for how he should behave as a sort of lead elder, as a lead pastor. The things that he needs to be devoted to, the the false teachings that he needs to fight against and correct. And last week I talked a little bit about how he needed, as a young pastor, to continue putting these things before the brothers. And, And I talked about what are these things? We have the same question, command and teach these things. What things? The whole book. Never forget the gospel of grace. Never forget how essential prayer is. Never forget how vital it is to have people discipling the church and serving the community. Never forget how critical it is to guard true and good and godly teaching because it's completely possible to put the Bible on a second tier and to be devoted to all kinds of other things that are good things, like in Acts 6, when they're saying, hey, our widows need to be fed, and the apostles say, yeah, they do, but we can't do it. We need to be devoted to the word and prayer. It's a good thing that the church must do. And so it's very tempting for a pastor to say, you know what, I'm going to step in and I'm going to fill that gap, and if I lose some time in my prayer closet, and if I lose some time in my private study, it'll be okay. Somehow it'll balance out in the end. And before long, the ministry of the word is neglected, and the power has gone out of the church. And Paul says, Timothy, command and teach these things, all of these things, not because Timothy has authority or he's some sort of power-hungry dictator, but because Timothy is tasked with giving the word of God to the church. He uses a strong word. This word command is not a suggestion. He's not saying, Timothy, prepare your best and take a survey. He's not. We don't take a survey on the commands of God. Sometimes you have to stand and say, this is what's right. And even if we don't like it, we need to be faithful to the word of God. Obedience is necessary because faith without works is dead. If you forsake the clear teaching and commands of God, you will not ultimately be saved because you will prove that you were never a believer. So number one, command and teach these things. God gives the church those who hold the word up high so that we will be saved as we hear the commands. As we hear the commands about the gospel and preaching the gospel. As we hear the commands about prayer and about leadership. As we are reminded of the goodness of God's creation and we enjoy his good gifts together. That's the beginning of chapter 4. 
But we could also add, and this is part of why we've got a class at 6.30 on Wednesday nights, the essential truths of the whole Bible. Truth about God as creator. Truth about what it means to follow the commands of Jesus. Truth about what this book is. Truth about the return of Jesus. Young Timothy learned from Paul how to present the whole counsel of God to a church so that they were well instructed in doctrine. Paul said, I'm innocent of your blood because I have not failed to tell you anything that would be profitable for you. And that's the goal of every pastor, to proclaim the whole counsel of God so that there's no ignorance about what God expects of his people so that we walk in obedience to his commands. But not only is Timothy responsible to command and to explain what those commands mean, he's also responsible to do it with kindness and gentleness. There's a strange combination of a steel backbone with a soft and a tender heart. 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul writes a follow-up letter to young Timothy. And he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Those verses are crazy when you apply them to the church that you and I attend. Or to any church. It's easy to read those and think, wow, Timothy had a crazy church. Evil in the church? The devil in the church? That's nuts. That must have been really hard for him. But this is for us. This is true of every church. Jesus didn't say the devil comes along and tries to steal the word in some places. Jesus said every time it's proclaimed, he's active. He wants you to forget what's true. He wants you to believe lies. And there will be conflict in every church. And so if you are called to serve the Lord in commanding the word of the Lord, then it's easy, especially if you believe that eternity and heaven and hell are at stake, to start to get this attitude like, this is so critical, this is so vital. If you disagree with me, you got to leave. To be a kind of dictator. And Paul says, that attitude is so inappropriate in God's servant, because what it does is it suggests that God is not actually the one in charge of the whole process, and God is the one in charge of the whole process. The Lord's servant can be kind and gentle because God is the one who works heart change. That's why we pray before every service, and that's why we pray during the service that the Lord would work in our hearts. That God would grant all of us repentance when his word reveals to us that we are out of step with his clear commands. And so Timothy is to command and teach these things with kindness and with gentleness and with patience. I love what he says, God may perhaps grant them repentance, meaning that perhaps he won't. And you may endure a long season of conflict. But that ultimately, if you and I have learned anything that's true, it's because God has taught it to us. And so we need to be very patient with those who resist the truth of God. And we need to be humble ourselves, knowing that there are areas where we resist the truth of God. And so we continue to ask him to work in our hearts So Paul begins, first command to save us all is command and explain what the word of God says with kindness, with gentleness, to explain with patience, to recognize that obedience is necessary on behalf of God's people, but sometimes that takes time for God to do a work, and that we need to be complete in our commands. I can't preach on my favorite commands that it's easy for me to obey 
and neglect all of the commands that I struggle with. There needs to be a completeness in commanding and explaining the word of God. Verse 11, command and explain. Verse 12, the second thing that he says, Timothy is commanded to exemplify integrity. There are a couple parts of this. Verse 12, he says, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. And we don't know exactly how young Timothy was. People actually debated a lot because you start thinking about what is an elder? How old does somebody have to be to serve as an elder? Some people want to push that age up pretty high. Some people want to leave it pretty low. We're not going there. Here's what matters for this verse. Character in pastoral ministry is essential. Character in pastoral ministry is essential. It's tempting especially as a young man, to say, look, I have the word of God on my side. I'm right, so let's do what the word of God says. And it's tempting to be authoritarian in how you do that, but notice what Paul says. He doesn't say, throw a temper tantrum, yell loudly, use logical arguments and a pile of evidence to prove you're right. He says, rather... Set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. In other words, Timothy, if you believe the gospel, your life is a sermon as well as the words that you speak publicly in the church. So fight for purity. Fight unbelief. Fight hatred and bitterness in your heart. Be careful with your words, both in public and in private. Exemplify integrity. Number three, there are a couple commands together in verse 13. He says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Now, there are a couple things that are part of this verse. It's interesting that he says, Until I come. Like maybe when he comes, they're just going to stop using the Bible in church? No, I don't think so. I think there are seasons where a pastor needs to be more focused on the teaching ministry. And then there are seasons when a pastor needs to be more focused on raising up others to teach. So in both 2 Timothy and in Titus, Paul tells these young pastors, you need to work hard to raise up other men who will faithfully teach the word in your churches. But at least for this season, Paul tells young Timothy, you need to do the work. You need to be faithful in publicly reading and in publicly preaching. The health of your church, the salvation of your soul and of your people depends on your devotion to the word of God. Friends, I believe if we do not know the word of God in our lives and in our church, we will not know what is true and we will not know what to do. Got one example of it that, that is tough and difficult to talk about, but I'll, I'll give it anyway because I think it, it matters very clearly in our church. What do you do when someone is in sin and you know about it? Especially if you are a pastor of the church. What does the Bible teach us about how to handle those relationships? So if someone persists in sin and will not repent, Matthew 18. If you don't know what Matthew 18 says, you try to figure it out on your own and do the best you can. But we are responsible to know what the Word of God says and to put it in practice. And Matthew 18 says you go privately. And if that fails, you try to have a meeting with one or two other people. And if that fails, then you take the issue before the church and address it publicly. And the whole church has to be brought in and treat that person as an unbeliever because they choose to persist in sin. Now, friends, that's not popular. Matthew 18 is rarely preached. Churches very rarely put it into practice because it's painful and it's hard. But Jesus didn't give us suggestions. He gave us commands. He's not our chief 
advisor. He's our king. And so when Jesus gives us instructions, and 1 Corinthians clearly shows the church applying those instructions to a believer who is in sin, so we not only have the instructions, we have an example of a local church putting them into practice, we would be foolish to allow sin to persist in our body. We must be faithful to do what is difficult. And so publicly reading and exhorting and teaching passages like Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 and and earlier in this book, I preached through both of those passages. Faithfully understanding what to do must come from the Word and it must come from careful preaching and it must come from careful teaching and from publicly reading Scripture. An exhortation. Exhortation is not, hey, FYI, this is what the Bible says. Exhortation is, this is what you must do because this is what the Bible says. There is authority in this book. It commands obedience in your life. If you hear it and do not do it, you will be judged based on what you heard and then disobeyed. So Paul is telling this young pastor, look, it's not you It's the word of God that has this authority and you must be devoted to publicly reading it and to exhorting the people of your church even when they don't like it to put it into practice and to do it. Friends, I really believe the things that we are commanded that are difficult are the things that will bless us the most. The things that we are commanded that are difficult are the things that will bless us the most. When obedience is costly, we will find God faithful. And when obedience is costly, we will find a blessing that we could not have comprehended if we chose to disobey. So Timothy is commanded to publicly command and explain the word. He's commanded in his personal private life to exemplify integrity in his speech and his love and his faith. He's commanded to publicly read and exhort and teach the scriptures. That's why I believe we devote so much of our services to preaching and to reading the word. That's why I I always choose a text that I'm not preaching on to to complement the message. Because I want to show the unity of the word of God and how the things that are true in one place are true all over the place in the Bible. Number four, he tells Timothy to maintain his gift. Number four, verse 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, there are a couple things that I want to mention here. In 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, Paul tells Timothy, fan into flame the gift that was given to you. And the fact that it's a gift given by God means it's of grace, and yet the fact that he's told to fan it into flame means that he's not like Michael Jordan playing basketball, okay? Like Michael Jordan practiced, but there was a level at which Michael Jordan didn't need to practice. He was incredible. He had a level of talent and ability that was just unheard of and that I don't think we've ever seen since. Pastoral ministry is not like that. There is a supernatural gifting. There is a real call. But the work of the ministry must be practiced. So I I regularly read books on preaching. What can I do differently and better from godly men that love the Lord, that love his word, so that I'm more effective in communicating the word, so that I'm more effective in communicating with you all, maintaining the gift that God has given me in preaching Sometimes means re-watching our services to see what I did badly. Sometimes it means listening to godly friends who say, man, I think you kind of blew it there. And it means persisting and diligently being devoted to carefully writing my messages so that I handle the word of God with, <coughs> excuse me, with accuracy and with love. Paul says this maintenance takes practice. 
It's not something that you will continually get better at just by coasting. You have to work at it, even though it's a divine gift. You have to be faithful in reading and in listening. You have to read good theology. You have to talk to experienced pastors. So just by way of example, some of the things that I do to make this happen, in addition to reading books by guys like Tim Keller on preaching, I read through the word of God every single year. I want to make sure that I know Genesis to Revelation, what God has said to us. Not only that, I've been working through Calvin's Institutes this year, not because Calvin is the best theologian ever, but because I'd never read it before. And so I want to read some of the classic works of theology, guys like Augustine with his confessions, guys like Luther. I want to know how has God blessed the church with good and faithful teaching in the past. And I may not preach from those things that I'm reading, but those things help me stay theologically grounded so that I'm accurate and faithful as I preach this book. Maintaining that gift means faithfulness in reading, means faithfulness in study, means reading commentaries that have different perspectives and wrestling with what the text means at the time it was written and now. So maintaining the gift takes practice and devotion. And finally, it also has to recognize the source of the gift. See, he says, and he does this a couple of times, he wants him to recognize that God is the one who gave the gift that he's exercising in pastoral ministry. He reminds Timothy of this at least three times in these two letters. Don't forget how the church gathered around you and prayed for you. Don't forget that you were set apart to serve in this type of ministry. And that God is the one who did that. So in Philippians, he also says this, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Recognize that when God was moving in the past, it wasn't so that he could later give up on you in the present. But instead, if God gave you this gift, yes, exercise it. Make sure you maintain it. But recognize God is faithful. And God will work through you and in you as you continue in faithful obedience and perseverance. So verse 15 continues in that vein. He's commanded to practice and to be devoted. Look at verse 15. He says, practice these things. Immerse yourselves in them so that all may see your progress. Man, immersing yourselves in them. There's like a temptation to just go off the rails as a Baptist pastor here. We practice baptism by immersion. There's a real picture of what a pastor needs to be like as it comes to how he reads and preaches and studies the word of God. Be immersed in the word. Let it be the thing that shapes your thinking in every area of life. Practice these things. Be devoted to them. It should take the majority of your time and ministry. Now, what's a majority? I would say 51% is the slimmest majority you could have, and we probably shouldn't shoot to be right at 51%, right? It's not a healthy way to operate the Senate. It's not a healthy way for a pastor to decide how to spend his time. Being immersed and being devoted and practicing means using a majority of your time to study the word and to publicly read it and teach it. Let it be the thing that you do more than anything else. Finally, verse, or not verse 6, but point number 6, he says, watch yourself and church teaching. Verse 16 Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Now, I think there is a slight distinction between teaching and preaching. And so the class that I'm teaching on Wednesday nights is more topical. We're, we're looking at what is the Bible? What does it mean that it's the word of God? What does it mean that it's inerrant? We're looking at who is Jesus Christ? What does it mean that he is both human and divine? We're looking at what does it mean for Jesus to return? What is heaven? What is hell? Those are all topics. And so teaching on those topics is a little bit different than preaching through a passage of Scripture. There are ideas out there that are dangerous and destructive that a faithful pastor needs to lovingly step in and correct and say, no, that's not true, and here's why. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching means 
two things. Your life matters. Make sure that your conduct is consistent with your preaching and teaching. And number two, be aware of what others are teaching in the church and how they are handling the word and make sure that everyone teaching is faithful to what God says. You are responsible not just for what you say, but for what the church is teaching as a whole. Keep a close watch on the teaching. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be negligent. You have a responsibility to guard what has been entrusted to you as a faithful minister of the gospel of Jesus. Don't be afraid when people contradict it. Boldly, lovingly, patiently remind the church of what is true and command them to obey it. Those are heavy-handed words. And so here's the last point today. The last point today, as we look at these 10 commands to save us all, is that you in the church, Timothy in the church, will be saved. That's not in doubt. It never has been. It never will be. Last phrase of verse 16, he says, For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's huge. We believe that when people hear the message of Jesus, that he died for their sins and rose from the dead, and they place their faith in that truth, that's how salvation begins. But the biblical truth is that it doesn't end in that moment. It just began in that moment. And faithful devotion to the word of God continues saving the minister and the church both as they continue in faith and belief. The end result is a thousand percent certain because it depends on Christ and not on us. But the way that he saves us is by persisting in this obedience. Friends, in one sense, the application of this passage applies to me most directly because I am a pastor. And so when I read these Ten Commands addressed to a pastor, I think they very directly are applied to my life. And so I have to, with the help of everyone here, seek to be humbled under the Lord and do these things. I have to examine my life, both my private life and my public life, and I have to repent of sin, and I have to seek to live a life that can serve as an example of the truth I preach. I need to balance the responsibilities of the pastorate so that I can say I am devoted to the public reading and preaching of the scriptures. I have to guard the teaching of the church. I have to make sure that I don't neglect the gift that the Lord has given me. I have to immerse myself in this. I have to be devoted to these things. And I believe that really means Genesis to Revelation, all of God's truth. Not neglecting anything. But friends, here's where it also applies to you. And I want to take a moment and I want to talk to those who maybe are not Christians yet before I talk to the rest of the church here. Because the salvation that I'm talking about may not be something that you have yet. And so I've mentioned the gospel a lot. Primarily in this message, I'm talking to people that already believe it. But if you've heard the gospel of Jesus, and you know that you need to repent of your sins, to forsake them, and to trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you walk away and do nothing, You are absolutely like the man in his house with the floodwaters rising. God is right now sending you a clear message. Repent of your sins and believe in the gospel. You will be eternally lost if you do not repent of your sins and believe the gospel. So here's what you should do. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Admit that you are guilty before God. Confess your guilt and believe with all of your heart that when Jesus died on a cross, nailed to a piece of wood, he did that, taking your punishment so that, although you are guilty, you can be forgiven and made righteous. Believe that message. Scripture says the first act of obedience is public baptism, identifying with Jesus Christ, saying he is my savior. If you have never been publicly baptized, do it. Be committed to it. Obey the Lord. 
And if you want to talk to me about baptism, I will be here as long as it takes to talk to every person here. Be obedient to the Lord and be publicly baptized, believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is God's message to you. Believe and be baptized. Be saved because of what Christ has done for you. But Christian, perhaps you've already believed that message. I want to ask you a few questions. Do you see the value in being devoted to Scripture and to obeying its teachings? Do you believe that reading Scripture, listening to it read, and listening to preaching is like that boat and that helicopter? Is that really how God works? Because that's what God says. That's how he works. Does your life show that conviction? Are you trying to learn how to obey Jesus according to his word? Are you trying to live a life that pleases him? Do you understand what is at stake if we abandon the clear instructions of God? So I want to end by kind of tweaking that joke that I told at the beginning of the service a little bit to kind of better align with our text, although it really ceases to be funny and instead becomes somewhat tragic. But think for a moment about a man who professed to believe in God. He believed that he would be saved because he was basically a good person and God is a loving God. He never worshipped God with other believers and he never remembered the death of Jesus with communion. He rarely listened to the Bible being read or preached and he never learned the truths of God's word. And if someone pointed to a clear command in scripture that he disagreed with, he would shrug and say, well, that's your interpretation. He excused sin in his life by saying that he'd never done anything really wrong and besides God's grace would cover whatever little mistakes that he made and that man died and woke up in hell. And he asked God, God, why am I here? Didn't I have faith? And God said to him, I sent you pastors and teachers to tell you to repent of your sin and believe. Did you do that? I gave you everything you needed to know for life and godliness in the Bible. Did you humble yourself under my word and obey the instructions I gave you? I sent my son to die for your sins and to rise from the dead. Did you ever believe in him? And friend, it's not a hypothetical question. The Bible says that all of us will stand before God someday answering those questions. The question that I have for you this morning is, are you accepting the salvation that God is offering you? Maybe you're already a believer, but are you accepting the salvation that God is offering you as the word is faithfully preached to you? Are you listening to it? Or are you dismissing it because you believe that it no longer applies? Friends, it's my prayer that we would all together, humbly and patiently, be devoted to the things that God does to save his people. If you are humbly trusting the word of God, then I want to say to you this morning, you need to take sweet assurance in the promise of God's salvation. Paul doesn't say, you might save yourself and your hearers. He says, you will save yourself and your hearers. There is no doubt Jesus is a mighty savior and he will save all who call on him. And if you've been wrestling with submitting to the word of God, would you commit again to humbling yourself before him and his word? If you're not sure if you're a believer this morning, I would love to hear from you. If you're online, you can send us an email through our website. If you're here in person, don't go until you've talked to me. I'd love to make sure that you've begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to invite you to pray with me now. Let's pray. Father, in your grace and in your love and in your mercy, you have made salvation freely available through Jesus Christ. You have not left us in darkness and ignorance, but through the light of the gospel of Jesus, you have given us what is true. And Lord, I pray that you would forgive us when we have neglected it, and that you would strengthen us when we seek to obey it.
pray that you would show your power to save this morning here in our church. And that for all of eternity, we would look back and see what you did and praise you for your mighty power to save. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to leave you with a verse from Jude that emphasizes God's power to keep. Jude ends this way, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.